Books and Quarks, a podcast all about science and engineering, supposedly. I mean, it's been a while since we last did one. I'm joined, uh, as with every time, uh, by my co-host Adam. Hello, Adam. Hello, Dan. How are you doing this fine I'm, morning? I'm pretty good, thanks. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, it's been a while, hasn't it? Oh, like... oh don't. Don't tell me about it. <laughs> okay, then. I, I mean, I don't need to tell you about it. I mean, you were part of it. I mean, you know. Well, yeah. But, yeah, it's been, what, about two months or something? So, yeah, it's since... been it's been just over two months since we last released an episode at the time mm. of recording. And for us, um, we've had a recording break of two and a half months. Yes. I mean, and this, this is just because of a variety of things, really. I mean... Um, so we recorded the last episode, uh, you know, the previous episode, and then I then moved out of my flat where I was living down in Falmouth back to my parents' house, uh, lived there for a week before flying out to Denmark, where I'm now living, um, for the next six months. Uh, then obviously I was having to, yeah, it's pretty cool, talk about it a bit more in a bit. Um, but uh, yeah, sort of. I had to kind of get settled in here and get used to everything and of then course. and then of course and you know really i've only been sort of comfortable enough with recording from now and then you, you've been pretty busy as well oh i've been really busy well sort of um october time or halfway through september actually funny enough after last episode obviously we spoke about you having been in hospital oh yes of course um Funnily enough, about uh, a week after we last recorded the episode, I spent a week in hospital. Oh, yeah. Cool. I forgot it was after the last episode. Yeah. How, yeah. How, what happened? Well, so um, it turns out after that week and after another test after that week of being in hospital that I have an eroded esophagus, um, <sighs> which basically means that I have a cut in the tube just before my stomach, um, but which wouldn't normally be too bigger deal but i also get bad uh, acid reflux as well mm-hmm. so basically what was happening was i if if my stomach was getting aggravated by anything i'd get indigestion and it would flare up the reflux and um i would essentially have what is very strong acid going into a cut inside me oh my god yes <laughs> it I was think- fairly painful Every single muscle in my body just cringed simultaneously. Yes, it was it was very painful. Um, after a week in hospital, they sort of managed to reduce the pain I was in. Yeah, um, a lot of morphine, a lot of. I was going to say just yeah. a lot of opiates. So basically, yeah. you're, you're you're an opiate fiend now. That's, yep, that's what we've established. I'm is... now addicted to heroin. <laughs> well, I'm it was. Only, okay. Let's be honest. You're a physics student. It was only a matter of time before you became addicted to some kind of drug to help you get through it. <laughs> this is true. <laughs> and speaking of, I'm now back to university. Um, hey, which has been fun. Uh, I'm loving our new flat. It's yeah. um, absolutely amazing. Actually, we we hosted a um a poker night for my friends last night. Sweet. How was um, that? It was really, really good. We sort of we we played a few games um, at first, just no cash monies put in, and then uh, no a, a few more friends turned up, and then we did because we're all students. We just did five quid in for everyone, okay. so it was it was a thirty pound pot. Um, I finished off with four pound fifty five. Oh, okay. I mean, that's, so, yeah, okay, so you didn't win, but you you know you didn't lose massively. No, so. but I mean, there were two 
two of my friends there who have played a lot of poker before and I expected them to come away with a lot of money and they did. One of them came away with £12.80 and one of them came away with £8. So Okay. And two of my friends lost their money. Hey, well, I mean, you know, poker is a game of winners and losers. So, exactly. exactly. You know, you can't go into it expecting to win all the time. No, not at much, all. Much like life, really. Uh, anyway, me and my flatmate then headed out um, in the hopes of seeing the Leonidas meteor shower. Oh, was um, that last night? It was, it was peaking last night and the night before. Um, oh. There was set to be up to 20 meteors per hour. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we, we headed out about midnight and just because we live in the middle of Bristol and it's in the easterly direction, mm-hmm. uh, we couldn't see shit. Damn it. Um, so, I mean, we would have had to been out until 3am before we would have seen anything. And even then there would have been a small chance we would have seen maybe two or three, maybe four. Yeah. The the effort wasn't really worth the payoff. No, it wasn't. Which is unfortunate. It would have been really cool to see it. But, um, but yeah. Yeah. I'm I'm annoyed. I didn't realize it was last night. I would have headed out and had a look. Oh yeah. You would have been, you would have had amazing opportunity to see it. Yeah. Like, cause the, cause I, so, so where I'm living, um, I'm kind of living in it on, on the outskirts of Copenhagen. Um, right. and so, you know, it only takes you sort of half an hour to get into the center, but so there's still, still some light pollution, but it's not as bad as the center, but I could have quite easily hopped on a train or a bus. Um, side note, the public transport here is excellent and like, makes a change oh it's, oh, it's so nice like this okay there's been a few times where i've had like delayed trains and stuff but that's like not near like when i say a few times i mean like there's been like a day where there were strikes it's like okay that makes sense oh, and yeah. then there's been a couple of days where they said like the trains are delayed but when they say delay they don't mean like half hour delay the trains run every 10 minutes so when they say the trains are delayed they mean the temp the train that was meant to arrive in 10 minutes actually arrives in 15 minutes right like, it's it's really not a big issue so it's I lovely see. and anyway yeah easy enough to ju- i could have just jumped on a train headed a bit bit further north um out of the countryside a bit and i could have got an amazing view i am pissed i didn't think about that yeah well the only reason I found out about it cause, is because obviously I'm on a physics course and everyone on the course knows about it. I, I so can't think why. I, I received messages about it. But um, but yeah, like it, it, honestly, in Bristol, we were sort of having to look right over the city. Mm-hmm. And it, just because of like, it was quite, it was very cold last night. So there was a bit of a, would you know what I meant if I said a, a like a, a heat haze? Yeah. So there was like, like a bit of condensation in the air, like. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, we we had a bit of that, and it was just making it was like haloing the city of light. So there was just yeah. not a chance in hell. Yeah, we just just thing. the moisture in the air kind of just refracting the light from the city, yeah. bouncing it around and making visibility just not great for anything. Exactly. Anything in the sky. Oh, that's annoying. Yeah, that's why, like. I've got cousins who live out in Australia and they came and visited and they were telling us about when they were just out in the outback looking up at the stars. And I was like, that sounds yeah. amazing. I want to go. Funnily enough, my aunt and uncle went and did that on their honeymoon and they oh, said nice. it was absolutely amazing. Yeah. I'd love to do it. I, yeah, I, I think at some point in the next few years, I need to organize a trip out to Australia. Um, yeah, so do I. I've got a mate who lives out there actually. Um, yeah. So free accommodation but exactly yeah that's that always helps yeah i'll go and stay with my cousins and my aunt and uncle and then 
travel around a bit on the east coast i reckon but always my thing about australia is just the fact that half of the world or more than half the wildlife is trying to kill you like that's yeah, just that's always makes you a little bit nervous yeah yeah i agree on that one yeah but um but yeah uh being out last night we did actually manage to see quite a few constellations um okay so we we downloaded uh, an app which was just i think it's called star tracker and it basically no yeah no spawn it just it just sort of tracks your location and looks where you're seeing uses the mm-hmm. gyroscope in your in your phone and stuff and basically shows you what the constellations are when you point your phone at different directions in the sky Okay, is is it like augmented reality where it does an overlay as well, or does it just say you know? Uh, if you... Yeah, it doesn't. It doesn't do an overlay. It just sort of does. Uh, it's basically like a wrapped three D image. Okay, yeah. Um, and it just tracks your direction more than anything, and and just shows you. So you can you can pretty much see when you're looking at stuff where things are, and it's actually really cool because we we found a small speck of light which actually turned out to be the andromeda galaxy oh cool which was really cool because I've, I've never really sort of seen it and known that it was that before yeah um, and we got to see uh, sort of cassiopeia that was um one of the constellations we got to see which mm-hmm. actually i hadn't really seen before but cassiopeia is the one that's kind of shaped like an m right yes yeah yeah, yeah so but it's actually really easy to see because all the stars are pretty bright yeah um and it's a very simple shape but yeah a few other constellations as well it's really cool mm-hmm. now the, i i can only really because i went on a like a space astronomy course oh i don't know like seven eight years ago now where we did or we did all kinds like you know we stayed up late one one night and we got out a you know a nice telescope we looked at the moons of jupiter and learned to identify the constellations but the only ones i can remember are cassiopeia uh orion uh and ursa major and ursa minor like those right. are really like i'm we definitely learn more than that <laughs> yeah but oh yeah yeah well the, yeah the plow i think the plow is ursa major i think it's just another name yes for it, it is I, it's it's part of ursa major that's it yeah yeah um because then because then yeah because you use because you then use the plow don't you uh, the, the, the sort of the far the two far right stars um you know geometrically not politically um you use those you form a line out of those and that's how you find polaris and North star isn't it yes and that is also how you find uh the leonidas uh oh two. is that how oh okay yeah, as in those those two point to something called um what is it um it's like the the safe or something like that or okay uh and then as part of that, that is part of um, the Leonidas. Kind of constellation. constellation. Okay. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Lost my words. That's all right. It's, I was going to say it's early in the morning when we're recording this, but it's it's not. It's just you haven't been awake for very long. Yeah. I have, I've, <laughs> I've been awake for just over an hour. So. <laughs> still, still booting up. And it was a late night last night. Come on. <laughs> yeah, exa- that's, that's fair enough. Well, Hopefully, hopefully you can uh, keep it together while sort of explaining your topic because I'm, I'm yeah, looking forward to well, hearing about it. Actually, I've, I've got notes, so that's that's fine. <laughs> that will definitely help. Yeah, I have five notes for mine as well. And uh, yeah, speaking of which, shall we shall we um, sort of get get going on first topic? Uh, yeah, unless you want to talk about the rebrand. 
This is a very good point. I'm so glad you're uh, working on this with me. Um, so for those of you who are eagle-eyed, you may have noticed we've had a uh, a rebrand, as Adam mentioned, all of a few seconds ago. And um, yeah, it's... I just say, I mean, I've got to be honest here, Adam did all of the work on this. Um, I am not in any way artistically inclined. <clears throat> oh, neither the, am I. Uh, Trust well, me. Well... I'm the kind of guy who, when you know, when he was in primary school, was asked to draw a, draw a tree, and I got one of those wooden rulers, and I just drew, you know, I put my pencil on either side of the ruler, and went, there we go, there's the trunk. Like I, I am not artistic in any way, but you, you know, from... you say that, but so did I, just because I was always sort of drawing like scientific stuff, and you always have to draw straight lines, so I like yeah. to draw with straight lines straight lines are just they're better they're just better um yeah anyway so adam has done some rather nice snazzy logos and banners and uh hopefully by the time this comes out they will have been rolled across the various platforms that we're on so facebook twitter podbean castbox etc etc um Ooh, so Cast why box. not thank you for reminding me to do that one <laughs> that's all right i've done everything but that <laughs> ah yes well, that was one of the ones we put on slightly later anyway, so that's Yeah, it is. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so let, let us know what you think. Um, I'm, I'm a big fan of the, of the new colouring and rebrand, but let, let us know your thoughts. Um, just, yeah, we, we, we figured, you know, five episodes, it was time for a change. Um, yeah, I mean, <laughs> it hasn't been very long, but the thing is, is with with the first logo, you could probably tell it was something that I put together in a really short amount of time. Like I said, I have no artistic skills, and it was put together on my own through some really bad software. And and for this, I used a proper logo design website, um, which is designed specifically for graphic design work. So it was it was just a lot easier and a lot better. Yeah. Fair enough. Well, I I think it's come up rather well. So have a look at that. Um, and meanwhile, unless there's anything else we need to talk about, I mean, I I've, think so. I've I've mentioned coming out to Denmark, but yeah, for, for those who aren't aware, um, I'm now living out in uh, in Denmark until until end of March. Um, I'm on work placement out here, still still working for the same company, but just in a different department and a different office. Um, it's more of a sales role. I'm speaking to customers. I'm trying to learn Danish and Swedish and Norwegian and Finnish. So, Ooh. yeah, basically Google Translate is now set to auto open when I turn on my work laptop. Um, right. Because I cannot get past without it. But luckily, everyone out in the Nordics just seems to speak incredibly good English anyway. To, oh, really? Honestly, to the level where... Okay, so when you say people speak good English, it's like, okay, yeah, you know, they, they can have a conversation, but you can... You know, sometimes there's a few things lost in translation. No. Um, the fact that, like, I have chats with, with my work colleagues and they are using idioms and just expressions that just clearly are not direct translations. So they understand the context. And it's like, it's because they learn from a very young age. But right. it's it's embarrassing how good they are at English compared to, you know, how good I am at any other languages i'm you know i'm fumbling i can just about speak english on a good day and i'm fumbling my way through every other language with the help of half remembered words and you know dictionaries of google translate um sure. but i mean it's i denmark is absolutely lovely and the, i understand the rest of the nordics are as well so if you fancy a holiday it's it's amazing like people should come out to denmark it's so I've, so cool 
always wanted to head out to those like Scandinavian countries yeah. just because they just seem like amazing to me. They are, they are. I mean, so I've only been in Denmark so far, but I believe I will be getting the chance to go out to Norway and Sweden, possibly Finland as well. Um, certainly, if I don't get the chance to go with work, I'll be booking my own flights um, or train. Actually, there's there's a, just a railway that runs from Denmark into Sweden. Um, oh, cool! Or into Norway, rather. Is it Norway or Sweden? It's Malmo. I think it's Sweden. Um, Sweden. Yeah, yeah. Norway's slightly further north, um, but you know everything's so close and it's so easy to get between them. Um, although Norway is massive. Um, oh yeah. Because I because yeah, I remember saying. Yeah, it's, it's monstrous. I remember saying to my work colleagues when I first arrived, oh, I quite fancy going to Norway and seeing the Northern Lights. And they said, you do realise that like, you basically have to go to the top of Norway. And that's yeah. like you know, four or five times the distance that it is to go from the bottom of Denmark to the top of Denmark. Like, it's really yeah. far. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, still, still might give it a go. Yeah, I think, I think you should. If you get the opportunity to, you absolutely should. Because when else are you going to get that opportunity again? Well, exactly. And with the uh, upcoming political event in um, end of March, I think travel within the EU for British citizens might become a little bit trickier. So, well, you know, take the opportunity while you can. Well, I don't know. The, the most recent, the most recent um, what's it called, uh, proposal Yeah, would say otherwise, but uh, whether well, that will be followed through on or not. God, yeah. I mean, we, we could probably burn, like, an hour and a half two hours just talking about that but this is science and engineering not politics uh we're we, you know oh, we're, we're, we're better you. than that um hmm? pardon oh microphone listeners, i think we've, uh, adam's gone adam's gone and this is uh this is just a recording of me now um not entirely sure what's happened um so i'm gonna uh make my party Bollocks. political broadcast now Oh, no, he has timed out and gone from our TeamSpeak channel. Nope, that's it. Uh, Rip Adam. So what I wanted to actually talk about is the coup that I'm actually going to be conducting on this podcast. Um, I think it's time for a bit of a change. You know, having having two presenters is all well and good. Oh, he's, he's back. Oh, hello. I'm here. I'm here. You're back. Oh, I was, I was just, I definitely wasn't discussing the coup that I was going to have on this podcast where I became the only presenter. Oh, right. Okay. That would have been fun. Yeah. I'm very sorry <laughs> about that. Uh, my internet right. dropped. Oh, which is very, very strange. Yeah, I uh, don't know why that happened, but anyway, right. these these things happen. I mean, that's that's probably um, a, a good time to move on. Maybe. Uh, yeah, yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. So cool. So uh, first topic for this week, I think it's me, isn't it? It is you. Yeah. Indeed. Yeah. Excellent. So this week, um, now, do you remember what the topic I talked about last time was? I believe it was biological batteries. It was, yeah. So batteries um, that use electricity released by bacteria, basically. So this week's topic is kind of related to that. Not intentionally at all. I was just looking for interesting engineering uh, news that happened this week. It just so happened this sounded really cool. So the topic I'm going to be talking about this week is bionic mushrooms. Bionic mushrooms. Yes. Now, these have kind of been in the news, and actually just recently I saw that QI, the Twitter account, tweeted out about it, and I was sort of kicking myself because I was like, damn, people are going to see that and find out before I talk about it on the podcast. But never mind, I'm going to go into a bit more detail. Please do. So, bionic mushrooms. um, 
It's essentially some research from uh, Stevens University in the US, which I believe is in New Jersey. Um, uh, Stevens Institute. Yeah, Stevens Institute of Technology in Hoboken, New Jersey. Um, they have created these bionic mushrooms. And basically what they've done is they've taken an ordinary white bottom mushroom and they've added some bacteria to it and some graphene sort of nano-ribbon conductive surfaces and made it so that when you shine a light on it, the mushroom generates electricity. Mad. I, it's completely mad. Effect, but with mushrooms. Yeah. So I'm going to kind of explain through kind of how how they've done this and how it works. Okay, cool. So at the core of it are these uh, things called cyanobacteria. Now, these are a type of aquatic bacteria um, that obtain energy through photosynthesis. Um, obviously, photosynthesis is, you know, creating energy from water, CO2 and light. Sure. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, for, any, for anyone who's kind of studied biology at sort of GCSE level or has a basic understanding of biology at all. Um, now, they produce, uh, sound bacteria obviously is part of this photosynthesis uh, produce oxygen and they're actually thought to be the cause of the great oxygenation event uh, which oxygenated our atmosphere which then allowed aerobic life to form so we kind of owe our existence to these cyanobacteria um, even though you know they're also responsible for uh, algal blooms you know the kind of the um, blooms of well of algae <laughs> name gives it away um, that kind of sometimes appear in kind of uh, seas and lakes and rivers um uh, the trouble is those can be toxic and that can actually cause uh if it's like a recreational swimming area or whatever they can cause it to be closed because they can you know causing quite nasty health effects um yeah the just name on that, from... sorry mm. just on That's that right. i believe i believe during the summer actually um because because everything was so hot and we just had no rain at all um, yeah. There was a lot of places in the UK which were suffering from a, a blue-green algae um, blooms, like in a yes. lot of lakes and rivers. And yeah, exactly. That was toxic. Now, yes, so these are exactly. So those are cyanobacteria. So these algal blooms they they happen more often when, as you say, it's warm and when the waters are still and they're able to kind of grow and multiply. And it's funny that you say they're green-blue because the name cyanobacteria literally comes from the Greek kyanos. I've probably mispronounced that, um, which means blue. Um, oh. And, and the, it's, you know, as in it, the, the bacteria themselves are sort of bluey green. Um, interestingly, uh, the, 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 the poison cyanide, um, you know, carbon nitrogen, um, it comes from, the, the word itself comes from the same root, kyanos, uh, because cyanide was first produced by heating the pigment Russian blue. And that produces oh, wow. the cyanide poison. So that's kind of the same, same word root. Oh, that's very cool. Thanks yeah. for that. Oh, nice, very bit of, nice bit of history. Exactly. So, yeah, as I said, kind of, they produce energy from photosynthesis. So, so the actual equation, for those who don't know, is 6CO2 plus 12H2O plus light produces C6H12O6, which is glucose, plus 6O2 plus 6H2O. So, you still, you know, you still get some water out at the end. Um, now, I then read a PDF which kind of went into the explanation of photosynthesis in a bit more kind of microbiological detail. Um, so it actually so it does this by using light to activate photosystem two to split water into hydrogen ions and oxygen molecules. 
So hydrogen ions obviously being just, uh, you know, a hydrogen atom, but without, and you know, the corresponding electrons, so sure. H+. Plus. Yep. Now, photosystem 2 is a, <laughs> here's a fun bit, is a group of two or more poly- polypeptide chains that use enzymes to energize electrons that are then used within the energy-making process within the bacteria. Yeah. Now, I didn't go too far down this rabbit hole because I, this, you know, I'm not a biologist and I'm more interested in the kind of the engineering of the macro solution here. Sure. But essentially, uh, the, the energized electrons come from oxidizing the water into hydrogen ions and mo- molecular oxygen. So. Okay. Yeah, um, I can see that. Yeah. So, so, you split, so you split the water into hydrogen ions and molecular oxygen and then the... Um, yeah, so, hi- so then the hydrogen ions are used to create the glucose, whilst the oxygen is just released into the atmosphere or, you know, okay. the, the, the area around cyanobacteria. Sure. However, not all of the electrons released by the oxidation process are used by the cyanobacteria to, you know, um, in its energy creation process. So then, much like the bacteria I talked about previously, they're released by electrogenic activity. So, you know, the water is split... And then most of the electrons are kind of taken into the cyanobacteria and utilized, but some of them are just released and they become free electrons floating around. Okay. So cyanobacteria themselves, they're well known in bioengineering for electricity production. You know, we've known about them for a while. We've known about their abilities, but the trouble is they can't survive for long out um, on artificial biocompatible services. So if you're wanting to sort of grow them, it has to be on you know, non-artificial surface. So researchers wondered whether the white button mushroom, um, which already hosts, a, you know, a rich variety of microbial life uh, on its surface, which I didn't know about, apparently they do. Um, they wondered whether it would provide the correct combination of, you know, nutrients, moisture, pH, temperature, you know, the right environment for the cyanobacteria to live for longer rather than just die off very quickly. Um, okay. And obviously, if they can live for longer, you're able to generate more electricity from them. So their tests revealed that cyanobacteria lasted several days longer on the surface of a button mushroom than on either the surface of a dead button mushroom um, or just on plain silicon. Um, so, th- so they proved that the conditions were actually better on a mushroom. So great. Okay, that's pretty so, cool. Yeah, exactly. Then, and I love this sentence so much, they used a robotic arm 3D printer to print an electronic ink of graphene nanoribbons to create a branch network of conducted paths across the surface of the mushroom. If that is not the coolest thing I've ever heard, I don't know know. what it is. I know, it's like, we're living in the future, man. It's amazing. So... Essentially, so yeah, so let's break that down. So robotic arm 3D printer, most 3D printers are kind of, you know, X, Y, Z 3D printers. I think we talked about previously, like a bed and you go and left a, and, and right track, and you build yeah. it up. Yeah, exactly. Whereas it's a robotic arm 3D printer. So think of just a 3D printer extrusion nozzle head, but mounted on a robotic arm. So yes, the robotic arm s- controls the movement. I think I've seen them before in when... Uh, I think, I believe it was an experiment in Japan. They built mm. a bridge with them, two of them, no. on either either side of a river or a, a very small, uh, it's probably a stream, actually, let's be honest. Yeah. Um, and they automatically built a, a bridge across across the stream. Using 3D printed robot, well, using robotic on 3D printers. Yeah. That must have been like 3D printers of concrete or something. No, it wasn't. It was uh, polymer. Really? Yeah. 
Oh, that sounds cool. I'm going to be looking that up later. I, I believe it was a polymer anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Really cool. Oh, sweet. Yeah. So, so, so this wasn't a polymer. This was an electronic ink of graphene nano ribbons. So graphene, obviously the very, very thin form of carbon. Um, and, you know, very conductive, a lot of interesting research being done into it. Um, and the nano ribbons literally just, you know, very thin, flat surfaces. So uh, I'll, I'll, in- I'll include links to obviously all, everything I'm looking at. And it's got uh, photos, but it's just it looks like someone's just drawn black lines onto this mushroom. Um, but it's just conductive paths, essentially, just laid across the surface of the mushroom. Well, basically, all they're doing is making a mushroom into a circuit. Yeah. Yeah, that's basically, yeah, they, they, they have laid a circuit down on top of the mushroom, is, is what they've done. Yeah. Um, so then, uh, using 3D printing again, they printed a bio-ink that contained densely packed cyanobacteria in a swirl pattern, uh, which I found out through a bit further reading, was actually a Fibonacci-based swirl pattern, um, okay. because uh, Fibonacci apparently appears a lot in nature. Um, it does, indeed, yeah. Yeah, I want to say like the helix spiral. That's like a Fibonacci pattern. Yeah, so it it Um, kind of is. It's it's sort of like if you think of um, an an exponential graph and turn it into a spiral, mm -hmm. that's essentially what you get from a Fibonacci. It's not quite the same, but it's essentially what you get. Yeah, Um, it's close enough. So yeah, it's it's a it's a spiral with a constantly expanding. sort of radius or or radial point if you think of every point on the line yeah um but but yeah it's actually really cool because um there was actually something that i saw on the science of attractiveness um and it said that the most attractive scientifically people Mm -hmm. uh, their faces follow the fibonacci sequence oh hang on so it's people's faces aren't a spiral no they're not (laughs) But it's it's something to do with um, the positions of facial features that mm-hmm. follow some uh, that follow the line of the Fibonacci sequence. Um, but I mean, it doesn't. It's not so like because obviously that just makes you think, oh, well, they're in a spiral then. But it, yeah. it's not. I think you you have to sort of see a picture of it to understand it. And I'm 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 pretty sure that's all right. Uh, okay. but it was a long time ago and it just came into my head as soon as you mentioned it so yeah see this as an aside this is what i love about sort of maths and mathematics is everything that the human race has created you know language and art and you know pretty much everything is is exactly that it's a creation it's an invention whereas maths you know it exists in nature you know and just the world around us it's not something we've invented it's an interpretation it is a human mapping of the physical world you know so it is it's a universal truth you know the fibonacci sequence we just dis- yeah sure we discover the fibonacci sequence but it exists in nature so it existed beforehand it's just we went oh that that exists that's a thing yeah exactly. i love that and, and love you know fact- what i know it's probably quite hard for you to admit being an engineer but yeah. but it's actually physics that's doing all this it's not maths maths is no, part well, of physics there, there, well there, there is you, i'm the sure universal you've seen the truth e- is physics i'm sure you've seen the xkcd uh, uh sort of like strip of like saying the different sort of um 
oh, I completely forgotten the word, but you know, you've got like maths, physics, chemistry, biology, engineering, and it's saying, like, that's it, it's like the orders of purity of the different disciplines. Right. And it's got, I think it goes, I think engineering is just below chemistry, or engineering might not even be on there, but it go, I, I know the last ones are like chemistry, physics, maths. You know, I've, so, just, I've just got it up here. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he's he's got mathematicians as being the most pure. Yeah. But I don't believe that, you know? <laughs> well, so we... we chemists, got... oh, aren't they mighty high? <laughs> well, of course they are. They're the ones manufacturing the drugs and make them high. Hey. <laughs> hey. Anyway, sorry, slight tangent there. Uh, let's let's get... <laughs> Ironically, having just talked about being high, let's get back to the mushrooms. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> so... Oh, dear. Yeah. So yes, 3D printed bio ink. Um, yeah, swirl pattern onto the mushroom cap. Um, and this swirl pattern kind of intersects with the graphene network at various points, obviously, because the graphene network was kind of going top to bottom of the mushroom. And the swirl is obviously going from the top, swirling around the mushroom, kind of laterally to the bottom. Um, so this kind of allows the electrons that are generated within the cyanobacteria to transfer from the bacteria to the graphene network um and shining a light onto the mushroom activates this kind of bio ink substrate uh the cyanobacteria start produce start photosynthesizing and producing electrons and these electrons then pass into the graphene network and then they're you know collected you know at each end of the network and you've you're creating electricity um so the research that they, they produced showed that the, the density and the alignment of the cyanobacteria um, affected the amount of the electricity produced. So, um, they, so they tried both with, obviously, the 3D printed structure, but they also tried just applying the cyanobacteria using just a pipette in the lab. Um, but they showed that because of the, as I said, the density and the alignment that they were able to get with 3D printing, they were to get eight up to eight times more electricity out of the structure if it was 3D printed than if they did it by hand. That's pretty cool. So that's that's pretty cool, isn't it? So yeah. I mean, okay. So I mean, I'm talking about the electricity being produced. Okay, we are talking in the scale of nanoamps here. You know, it is not of course in the yeah, scale I mean... at the moment. So I I I had a dig. I actually found the original research. I had to um, use a, a login, an old login that I have, um, but they they're able to produce um, up to 67 nanoamps per mushroom. So okay, it's that, not, that's not that bad. It's not that bad, you know. It's not amazing, you know. Like, if, from my point of view, amazing would be if they did it first off and they were to get on a scale of milliamps. You know, that would be cool. Well, that, that would be an insane, though. Like, I mean, oh, that, absolutely. That would just be ridiculous. Yes. But, uh, you know, 67 nanoamps, it's, for a first time, for a first pass, it's not horrific. Now... Obviously, this is research, and it's very early scale. So, but as with everything electrical, it could be scaled up and made more efficient in the future. You know, yeah. um, you could have a bank of mushrooms producing electricity for you. you know, because there's nothing to say you can't connect them together. No, um, I mean, and you. Uh, what comes to mind with me is cost efficiency. Like, it's hard to find to or to think of a way that that would become more cost efficient. But as you say, as sort of. As time goes on, things become more cost-efficient as we mm-hmm. make new discoveries. So, I mean, maybe one day it could be viable. Yeah, maybe one day you just, you know, you're able to grow plants 
apply a substrate to them, expose them to the sun, and you're generating electricity. So, I mean, and I have to say, I, I got to the end of my research for this, and I suddenly went, now, stay, slight tangent, stick with me here. Do you or did you watch Doctor Who? No. No, okay. So there was an episode a few years ago where, which was surprisingly enough set on a spaceship, and they, uh, I believe the episode was The Time of Angels. It was Matt Smith's era. And they were trying to find the engine room. So they found the engine room, and what they found was a forest. And they were confused because, like, it's a forest, it's not the engine room. But then it was proven that each of the trees um, were producing electricity. Right. So, and that electricity was then used to power the engines. So I went, hang on, are we saying that we could, you know, using this technology at some point in the future, we could have trees that not only, you know, photosynthesize and generate oxygen for us, but also generate the electricity we need to, you know, power, you know, a ship. Say, for example, you have, as you know, an, an ion engine that uses electricity. This, this could be the research that 100, 150, 200 years down the line produces the sort of habitable conditions we need for interplanetary travel. I'm thinking way outside of the box here and way into the future, but this could, this could be it. Yeah, I mean, I'm sort of having trouble seeing it just as, but that, that might, may just be the limitations of my own mind. Fair, um, uh, let's be honest my mind is wired up in a very strange way so maybe i'm just being completely you know a bit out there but hey i i thought it was quite cool uh, oh no so, it's very cool yeah thank so, you Danby. Yeah. very cool <laughs> oh god no oh, why anyway so yeah i just yeah i mean mushroom you know living mushrooms the you know we've combined two kind of microbiological worlds kind of the mushrooms and the bacteria and they're able to live perfectly happy for, you know for a couple of days together admittedly and then the cyanobacteria die off but in that time they're generating electricity and in the future hopefully we can get it so that the a the cyanobacteria survive for longer slash can live on the mushrooms indefinitely and b can generate a lot more electricity yeah. and i yeah i thought that was something really cool that was in the news this week yeah, possibly coming when it came out. Definitely, that's that's pretty cool. Okay, Dan. So this one from me today is is gonna be sort of about the entire universe. In okay a way, uh, you do realize we've only got a certain amount of time to record this, right? I mean, well, and there is you know, the universe has a finite lifespan. Oh well, yeah, I mean. You know, out of the 14 billion years it's been here, I I might need, hmm, let me see, 20 minutes, 30 minutes? Oh, yeah, that's fine then. Go go for it. Yeah, I mean, that would be quite impressive if I explained the whole universe in 30 minutes anyway. If, if you just spend 30 minutes saying the number 42, I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Okay. Okay. So, so what this is going to be about is I'm essentially going to be talking about the biggest and the most recent news in physics since the Nobel Prize announcement this year. Crikey. I'm going to give you a guess now. If if you can guess, then I'll be I'll, well. I won't be that impressed because I mean it's pretty big news, but um, yeah. But I will be now, impressed. I did see something pop up on my. I think it was on Twitter or Facebook. I can't remember. Um, physics record. Is it to do? with the kilogram 
It is indeed. Oh, I think I know what this is, but go, but go for it. Okay, so so what I'm going to be talking about is is the fact that the kilogram has been redefined. Yes. So you might think first of all, like, what do you mean definition of the kilogram? If you're if you're not really that scientifically inclined, you might think, well, the kilogram's just a kilogram. That's what it is. Mm-hmm. But um, but no, I'm going to tell you a bit about the history of the kilogram. Okay. First of all, so you may not know, but the very first definition of of the kilogram was was actually originally called a grave, quite ironically. Oh, okay. Um, and it it was made an official unit of measure uh, for mass by the French Academy of Sciences in 1793, and was it, it was essentially done to have a better standard for measuring grain. Okay, so so it, so it was called the grave with a V. Yes. Okay, but it was for measuring grain. It was for measuring grain. Yes. Okay, and any reason for the name grave? Does it mean something different in French or? Uh, I'm not entirely sure. I think grave does mean something in French. Uh, whether you can quickly look that up, whether it it, it might not be anything, but uh, but yeah, if you want to, I'm give that a desperate. quick Google Translate. Yeah. you know me. It's permanently open now. Oh yeah. Um. It means serious, uh, as a surprise, um, or severe, or acute, low-pitched, base, solemn, enormous, weighty. Weighty? They're, one of the translations is weighty. Well, that may come from the fact that the kilogram was called the grave, so that may be yeah. the other way around, okay. rather than they called it the grave because it means weighty. It might mean weighty because the yeah, kilogram because was originally the called the grave. And, yeah. Okay. Anyway, a bit of etymological history. Yeah. So the grave was decided to be the mass of one decimeter of distilled water at a temperature of four degrees Celsius. Now, okay. The reason for it being done at at four degrees Celsius is is because that is the temperature at which water has the highest density under standard pressure. Right. Okay. Standard pressure being one point oh one atmospheres. Yeah. Indeed. Or kilo atmospheres. Yeah. Oh, no. Yeah, atmospheres. I was going to say, killer atmospheres. At that point, it's the water something. is solid. It's killer something. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So, uh, yeah. So, um, that's the temperature which is highest density under standard pressure, which means you're getting sort of the maximum mass of one decimeter of distilled water, essentially. Okay. So, it, this was something that was quite easily replicated in most labs at least ones that were sort of well equipped to deal with it Mm. um and so what they did with this was they made a block of brass uh which was cast at a relatively good accuracy to preserve a more exact value now you think of brass you think okay it's used to make statues and stuff like yeah that's all, all well and good but you do get a bit of ionization of the surface uh, of brass, which is why it goes a different color over time. Yeah, and 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 surely, sorry, hang on. Brass is also an amalgam, isn't it? It's um, copper and zinc. Uh, I think. believe so. Yes. Um, so surely, there there won't just be one. So it's gonna. Uh, yeah, copper and zinc. So surely there won't just be one set of proportions of copper and zinc that produce brass. It's going to be differing proportions, and therefore differing 
densities, so you're going to get different masses of brass. Yeah, I mean, so this this was sort of like one block of brass which was cast, which has said, okay, this is our prototype for the kilogram. Right, I see, okay. Rather than being able to make it out of any block of brass, because obviously, like you said, you get different purities and, and different proportions to make different alloys of brass. Yeah, gotcha. But um, anyway, so this was all well and good. But unfortunately, the big problem with this definition was because at the time, the meter wasn't actually defined accurately. Right. Um, so that was also defined by a, uh, I, th- I believe it was a steel rod or it's some other alloy. It was just a rod of a length and that was the meter. Right. So, so yeah. Um, once the meter's definition changed... Uh, which is now, hang on, two seconds. Uh, okay. The meter is now the length uh, travelled by, or the distance travelled by light in one over the um, the speed of light is worth of seconds. Right, hang on, sorry, say that again. So it's, the meter is the distance travelled by one over three times ten to the eight seconds. Right, okay. The length is now the distance travelled uh, in 300 millionths of a second. Right, okay. But, uh, the, the distance travelled by light? Yeah, the distance yeah, travelled okay. by light in, in, one, in 300 millionths of a second. So that's the speed of light. So it's, it's a bit less than 300 millionths, but, okay. but With, just rounding. Do you know when that was defined? Because surely it's got to be at some point where we could accurately measure the speed of light. Yeah, so that was sort of done when once um, interferometers and the speed of light actually became, like measuring the speed of light became a bit more accurate. Um, I, I don't have a date for it, uh, no. but it was it was a fair bit later, to say the least. Yes, yeah, it wasn't in the 1700s. Yeah, so, and be- because the meter wasn't defined that well, it needed to be the kilogram needed to be refined to meet a higher level of accuracy which was needed for scientific practice. And so, because the meter wasn't defined, obviously you get... Because you, you have a decimeter of water to define the kilogram. Ah. Uh, so... Yeah, that was variable then. So, yeah. So you have small errors in the, the length needed to, mm. to calculate the volume, and then you'll have very small errors in the actual amount of water which is going in because it's sort of hard to measure out exactly one decimeter of water. So these really small errors actually translated into very large errors when you're measuring anything that's either very, very small in mass or very, very large in mass. Yeah. So when sort of astronomers started uh, finding all these methods for calculating the masses of stars and such you would get very large errors caused right. due to this very small error on the initial kilogram. Okay. So, after some time, uh, which came to 1889, mm-hmm. the General Conf- Conference of Weights and Measurements... That's one what ha- a yeah. what wild bunch of guys. Hell, that hell of a name. Dis- oh, yeah. uh, they basically decided that a new physical object was needed to define the value, um, mm. and it was deemed the international prototype kilogram. Now, okay. this is essentially what's been used till this day. 
Um, six copies were made in total, and they were cylinders cast from an alloy of platinum and iridium. Oh, yes, yeah. And yeah, and, and those materials were used because they're very inactive materials, so that they're not going to react chemically much. Uh, mm-hmm. And they're also very resistant to damage, like scratches or dents. So they're very hard materials. Um, okay, so so the, so the the actual weight of the kilogram isn't going to change because it's reacting with anything in its environment or it's been damaged. Exactly. So that, and that's it's lost some of its mass. That's okay. the idea: is that it's it's not going to lose mass because it's very unreactive and it's very resistant to damage. Yeah. So there is that in mind. Uh, but actually, there was a problem still with with loss of mass over time. Um, it, it was very, very small. I believe it was 2 times 10 to the minus 6 since 1889. Uh, that would be kilograms. Oh, okay. That, that, so that's not every year. That's just since. No, yeah, that, that's just since. So it's, it, oh, okay. really yeah, it really hasn't is. changed yeah. in mass much at all. But it does still create these these errors when you get up to the very, very large scales of sort of finding the mass of galaxies now. Yeah, sure. It it doesn't affect you if, for example, you're weighing yourself on a set of scales. No. But if you're weighing a star on a set of scales, then, yeah, it's going to affect it. Exactly. Uh, Well, weighing weighing a star on a set of scales may have some implications. Well, if you've got a long enough lever. (laughs) All right, yeah, fair (laughs) enough. Um, But yeah, so ever since that the creation of the international prototype kilogram that's been kept in a facility just outside of paris um okay. so it's it's been kept underground in a very high security vault for all that time and actually yeah. that that's just one of them one of them is kept there at all times uh to to sort of act as a control yeah and all all five of the others are sort of shipped across the world to to ensure that every country and everyone is using the same standard of kilogram right okay so so every kind of country in the world is within a relatively close globally speaking distance of uh you know a, a mass of one kilogram yeah i mean or else we just have different places and different companies saying that one thing had two different mass measurements because one one company could say okay this mug weighs 0.3 kilograms and yeah. a different a different company or or country could say uh actually no it doesn't it weighs 0.25 kilograms yeah so okay so it's 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 a global standardization tool yeah exactly so that that's the whole reason why the other five are sort of sent out um, okay it's funny you, you say you know like the, the the not the original but one of them is kept in a high security bunker outside paris why am i imagining nicolas cage just with a you know a plucky <laughs> troop of guys going, I got an idea. We're gonna steal the international kilogram. Yeah, actually, <laughs> it's it's nicknamed Le Grand K. So <laughs> so I could just imagine him saying, "We're gonna steal the Grand K." <laughs> there we go. We've we've just written the script for uh, National Treasure uh, number three. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing international uh, treasure i'm i'm gonna write to him now and pitch it yeah so um actually after the uh, may 20th in 2019 he's 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 gonna have a very big sort of um issue with being able to steal that so he better get yeah. a move on is basically what i'm saying so with the 
Le Grand K uh, actually losing this very small amount of mass over very long periods of time. Mm-hmm. Um, an agreement has now been made, and it's been made this week, uh, to redefine the kilogram in terms of universal physical constants. Right. So, like, the speed of, uh, or the the distance of a meter is defined by the speed of light. And yes. uh, the second is now equal to, hang on, let me read this, 9,192,631,770 transitions in the hyperfine ground state levels of cesium-133. Okay, I think there are a couple of parts of my brain that are still trying to catch up with that sentence. Yeah, so that that's what one second is equal to. It's equal to all these oscillations of of these transitions of electrons going through different states or d- different energy levels within a cesium atom. Okay, I mean, who who chose that number? What did you say? It was nine nine billion, nine million. Uh, nine nine point one nine two six three one seven seven billion. Okay, I mean, who chose that number? Why did they say oh, it's nine billion? Oh, it's ten billion. Like, was it was it because that was the closest number of transitions we had to like uh, our current definition of a second? Anyway, yeah, it, it could well be. Um, I I think that's probably the case. Yeah, but yeah. um, but yeah. So going back to the um the kilogram now. Hmm. This this agreement and these these conversations about redefining in terms of physical constants it's it's been happening for a long time. People yeah. have wanted this to happen for so long now because the kilogram, like obviously you want it in terms of a physical constant because yeah. that's what's described by nature. Exactly, something that isn't going to change due to the environment or circumstances exactly. around it. Exactly. Yeah. So the reason it's taken so long to happen is because. In order to get an accurate value, they have to comply with something called exacting standards, um, which means that the constants in question, so for for the kilogram, it's actually Planck's constant, mm-hmm. um, which is being used to determine it. Um, these, these constants have to be measured uh, to an uncertainty of 30 parts in a billion. Right. That's, that's quite, uh, like... A good level of uncertainty. Yeah, <laughs> it is. It is a good level of uncertainty. It's not. It's not actually that amazing, but it's it's good. Okay. Nonetheless, um, which is yeah. As I said before, this these have already been done for the second and the meter. Um, mm-hmm. So the agreement states that as of May twentieth, twenty nineteen, the kilogram will be defined in terms of Planck's constant, as I said before, which is equal to. I'm going to give you another big number now. Well, oh, actually, good. it's a very, very small number, but it's a long one. Uh, okay. 6.626.07015 times 10 to the minus 34 joule seconds. Right. Okay. And that's Planck's constant. So you think that's an incredibly small number. Yes. Uh, Planck's yeah, constant, of course, is used to... Oh, it's used in a lot of things, mainly in particle physics and quantum physics. Yep. Um, yes, I remember that from my A-level. Because it, it describes a lot about the, the atom, and uh, it's basically heavily linked to, to quantum physics and the birth of quantum physics. Yeah. So the constant is usually measured, measured in joule seconds, 
but this can also right. be expressed as kilograms meters squared per second. Right. Okay. Yeah. So, so that's what joule seconds is also equal to. Yes. Um, and because you get it in terms of the kilogram, you can use it to define the kilogram. Oh, I see. Yeah. Because we because we've already defined a second and a meter using other universal constants. Exactly. That allows us to define the kilogram in terms of it. And the only thing that's been holding us back is getting Planck's constant right to the right amount of uh, uncertainty. Oh, okay. So now, obviously, so- because we know what a second is and we know what a meter is, then we can use the measurements, the measurements along with a um, fairly exact knowledge of Planck's constant. We can get a new, very precise definition of the kilogram. Oh, fantastic. So, and... Um- and this is, and so then I presumably once this happened, what do you say, March this year, March, when was it? Sorry? So it's uh, so it's going to be in place as of May 20th, 2019. That's it. Okay. So as of then, all of the, I, ma- I imagine the kilogram kind of prototypes are going to end up in museums because they're no longer needed. I would imagine um, so. Yeah. And then, uh, okay. I mean, presumably the, the redefinition is going to be close enough to the original kilogram that for day-to-day usage, it's not going to affect anyone. Like, yeah. It's not as if someone who previously said they weighed, you know, 70 kilograms, it's suddenly going to weigh 67 kilograms. Oh, no. Because because the change is not going to be that massive. Ha ha, pun intended. <laughs> um, so, but, but as you say, on like very, very small measurements of mass or very very large measurements of mass it's going to make a significant difference because finally you're able to define something much more accurately yeah so in terms of being a difference you're not going to see that big a difference even in sort of pretty large mass mass measurements you're only going to sort of um be able to refine your uncertainty better right i see okay so yeah, it's, so, it's a reducing uncertainty thing. In terms of scientific practice now, it's mm-hmm. not going to make a huge difference other than, like I said, with those very incredibly small mass measurements and incredibly huge um, mass, mass measurements. I don't know why I keep saying mash. Mash. It's, it, it's mash a great TV show and a very tasty food, but it's got nothing to do with a kilogram. It doesn't at all. Uh, apart from that, it could weigh some fraction of a kilogram, or this is true. Many, many kilograms if you have a lot of it. A kilogram of mash, mm. <laughs> carbs. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, so yeah, there's actually a very good um, article by PBS, which is about how Planck's constant was measured accurately, uh, mm-hmm. and and that will be in the show notes. Um, but but yeah, it's kind of weird because. We used our definition of the kilogram to define Planck's constant, and then used Planck's constant to define the kilogram. Yeah. So, <laughs> I mean, think what you want. It's been done very accurately, and there's been a lot of experiments done to sort of yeah. try and get the kilogram exactly right to what we we want it to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and actually, I'm not sure if you if you know there there was I think there was a Veritasium video quite a while ago now, where yeah. he he spoke about Lagrange K, and he spoke about the kilogram, and he was talking about uh, an experiment that was done called the Avogadro project, um, which is basically where 
the group of scientists hoped to calculate the exact number of atoms of silicon in a sphere that was equal in weight to the Grand K, um, which used mm. a single isotope of silicon, which is silicon-28. Um, and this silicon sphere was was made smooth to near atomic precision. Wow. So it was essentially the smoothest object in existence, or the, the most spherical the most uh, surely that be the most spherical man-made object. Yes. Neutron stars yes. are ridiculously smooth. Yeah, that's very true. Um, yeah, but yeah, the, um, and that was sort of done to derive a more precise Planck's constant. But basically, the researchers were just not satisfied by the results it gave, um, and okay. it went nowhere. So oh. um, yeah, so the the actual Planck's constant instead was determined by something called kibble balances, which I won't go into detail on because we are running quite high on time right now. <laughs> yeah. Um, but if you do want to read about that, there is that PBS uh, article, which will be in the show notes. Um, my notes have been based off of a uh, fizz.org um, article, which will also be in the show notes. So give that a read if you want to sort of know a bit more of the history behind it. Yeah. But yeah, I will have to check that out. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I just saw it's something that's sort of um, it's it it it's, defines it's big how we live very much. So yeah. I, I thought that it would be very useful, even though I know for a fact that it's going to be plastered all over science channels on YouTube and <laughs> and it's going to be on probably half of the science podcasts that exist this week. So yeah. But it's still a big thing, exactly. and it's something that we ought to know about. Exactly. Yeah, well, thank you very much. That's, yeah, that's really cool. I'm going to be looking into that after the episode. Right, so I think that's, that's it for this week. So what have we covered? So, I mean, I we had a bit of a catch-up at the start. Uh, talked about you seeing or trying to see various uh, constellations and, and meteor showers um, and my, my current location in Denmark. Uh-huh. Um, After a very, um, very long, long-needed catch-up. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, we, we chat a bit via Facebook, but we haven't actually spoken, you know, vocally for, for well, since the recording. Yeah. Previous recording, anyway. Um, yeah, and then I talked about bionic mushrooms and the fact that we can now generate nanoamps of electricity using uh, bacteria that are sort of placed onto just normal, normal white button-cut mushrooms and hopefully... That'll be kind of refined further in the future. Yeah, indeed. And I mean, I just quite simply spoke about the redefinition of the uh, the kilogram, uh, which was now defined in terms of Planck's constant. Yeah. Oh, which yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to be looking into that after the episode because I'm sure there's a whole host of additional stuff around that. Yeah. That we didn't have time to cover. I mean, speaking of the Veritasium video, I think he's released another one now. Uh, I believe it's called "The Kilogram Is Dead." Long live the kilogram. I think I might have seen that pop up on my uh, my feed, actually. Yeah, I will have to check that out. Do, please do. Thank you for joining us in our brief delve into the world of physics and engineering. If you're interested in either of the topics we've discussed, the links will be in the show notes. Alternatively, if you'd like to contact us, though don't ask me about mushroom biology because I'm not a fungi. Wee. Yeah, sorry, just had to. Our email is sparksquarks at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter and Facebook at SparksQuarks. 
and you can check out our new branding there as well absolutely that's it from us see you next time time.